are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2019. Today's episode is titled Finding Your Goshen. Kingdom management is bringing order out of chaos. That is, aligning everyone and every initiative in an organization with the will and ways of God. Management must always seek this objective with all stakeholders. One aspect of alignment with God is the prudent use of debt. Management should always be aware of the peril associated with the imprudent use of debt associated with Keynesian economics. Given the record levels of global debt at all levels, there is looming peril. Wise management will recognize this risk and seek the Lord for wisdom to prepare for a financial reset by finding and or establishing modern-day Goshens for the people of God. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Finding Your Goshen. Well, this morning I want to talk about finding your Goshen. Now, of course, if you're familiar with Scripture, you recognize the word Goshen and associate that with the children of Israel. That was the place where they settled uh, when they fled to Egypt uh, to escape famine. And Joseph had been sent ahead of them to prepare the way. And so they were able to find a place of peace, provision, protection, and prosperity there in, in Egypt in Goshen. And Goshen was in the uh, Egyptian uh, delta region, which is very fertile soil, which enabled them to be uh, very effective farmers uh, and have a lot, of, uh, a lot of really great provision and a lot of prosperity in the natural for about 430 years. Uh, <clears throat> well, roughly that. And then eventually the rulers of Egypt didn't know who these people were. They didn't know Joseph because he had long passed. They didn't know the Israelites because they didn't know the story of how they got there and their relationship with Joseph. They didn't know any of that. All that get you know got lost. And that's so typical of generations that don't think big picture. They don't think multi-generationally. They think it's all about them. So you could call that narcissistic thinking, very self-centered thinking. It's very similar to what we have today where people know almost nothing about their heritage, nothing about history, and don't know why things are the way they are. So that's a, that's a, basically a position of ignorance. It's a position that shows poor stewardship. It's a position of people who are showing no care for anything but themselves. Well, the Egyptians were that way, uh, just like we are today, and so the Israelites found themselves becoming slaves to the Egyptians because the Egyptians really didn't know what else to do with them and they didn't want them to cause trouble. So we'll just bring them into a role of being slave and we will dominate them. We will rule over them. So Goshen, while it started out being a wonderful place of provision, protection, prosperity, it ultimately became a, pl a place of imprisonment for them. Now, what, the way I'm using this term Goshen is not the imprisonment sense, but in the sense of provision, protection, and prosperity. And so I want to use that, that imagery of Goshen to talk about how we need to be thinking about a place of provision, protection, and prosperity even today. So that's the reason I've titled this uh, Finding Your Goshen, because I think that there is a way that in Christ we can find our Goshen. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything in the natural is going to be easy. I think the natural could get very difficult. But when we are strong in the spirit 
and we're strong in the Lord, and we're strong in the Word of God, and we're strong as a community, an interdependent community, then we can be be prosperous. We can have protection, and we can have provision. And so that's that's the sense of which I want to challenge us today, is to begin to step up to a new level of thinking, a more robust, profound level of thinking about where we are in history and, and what, what's likely to happen in the years to come. So a text to help guide us through this is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, I don't have time to exegete the text, but we can read it, and we'll talk a little bit about what the text is saying. So Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking is sound thinking. It's thinking correctly about reality. It's thinking from a Christian worldview. That's the idea. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now, over the last 300 years, there's been a rise of, of scoffers in the culture. Basically, if, if the world is about 6,000 years old, for the first roughly 5,700 years, there were scoffers around, but they were not that big an influence on things. But since the, uh, about the 17th, 18th century, things have dramatically changed with the rise of naturalism and the, what we call the French Enlightenment, which really inculcated naturalism and rejected, rejected biblical Christianity. Uh, then you have the rise of the theory of evolution, which became a mechanism by which people felt emboldened to reject Christianity because now we can explain creation without, without a God hypothesis. And then the liberalization of really the culture, which has largely eliminated Christian influence from everything except to some degree in local churches and maybe families. Although that is happening too because many, many, if not most local churches are very liberal today. And liberal means liberated from biblical truth. Okay, liberation is not a, a term of a virtue. Many people that call themselves liberals think it's a virtue. But Christians know that you know, liberals are not virtuous people in the sense that don't, they don't line up with God and they're an open, outward rebellion against God. So these are the scoffers. They're following their own evil desires, and it is becoming rampant in our country. And just a, a recent example of this that you may not be aware of, but in California, there is actually legislation being considered by the state legislature there that would make it a crime if anyone were to come to you and indicate they have some kind of of gender or sexual dysphoria. Dysphoria means confusion. And um, they need help. And you were to give them some kind of help that would encourage them to line up with biblical values. That would be a crime. In other words, it would be a crime to practice a Christian worldview. And behind that, in time, it's going to be a crime to even hold 
or profess a Christian worldview. So these are the evil desires that are rising up in our culture in unprecedented levels, unprecedented in the history of the United States. Not, un not unprecedented in the world, but unprecedented in the United States. Here's what they will say. Where is the coming he promised? Referring to Christ. Ever since our fathers died, and of course he's writing to Jewish people, so these are Jewish scoffers that he's talking about. They're saying ever since our fathers, referring to the fathers of the Old Testament, died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now this is a, a, a prophetic um, prediction about a principle called the the theory of, of uniformitarianism. It is the theory that is behind carbon dating. It is the theory behind the theory of evolution. These are presuppositions that are being made by people that enable science to make claims that are counter to the Word of God. So basically Peter is predicting the time that we're in. He predicted it 2,000 years ago. And he's predicting the kind of thing that will embolden it, which is the theory of evolution to a large degree based on the presupposition of uniformitarianism. Then he goes on to say, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of the water and by the waters. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. In other words, the flood was a catastrophic event. And the theory of uniformitarianism assumes no catastrophes, no major catastrophes. So right there you have a contradiction to the assumption of uniformitarianism. And he's pointing them, obviously, to the Old Testament as, as the evidence that the theory of uniformitarianism is wrong. It will lead you astray. And so this, this is why, you know, he's explaining exactly why and how we will get into the state we're in today. So we are living out the reality of this prophetic word that Peter gave 2,000 years ago. We're living in it. He goes on to say, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. In other words, there's going to be a judgment like the flood, but the next time it's going to be fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. On some level, when I looked at the fire in California this last year, um, as I watched that unfold in just unprecedented, unpredicted, you know, measures, and the people they're talking about there, there never been anything like that in the history of Northern California. My thought went back to this text here, and I wondered if the Lord wasn't giving us a little taste of what this is going to look like. So I went out there to see what happened, and I was shocked to see the utter devastation and destruction, complete destruction of large areas of, ur of urban life. Homes just burned to the ground, nothing left, block after block after block. And then I heard stories of how the fire was moving so fast that you couldn't outrun it. The only way to escape the fire is you had to know it was coming, get in your car, and race out of there. Because if you tried to run out of there, it was, it was moving at about 35 miles an hour was the estimate. Nobody can run that fast. So it was a very devastating, scary thing. It shocked that community. 
And one of the evidence of, of, of it being shocked, Adam Peacock gave to us recently at the Transforum, he said it little things like there's an increase in just minor accidents there because people are still so stunned. They're kind of, they're not with it. They're not paying attention. They're, they're just shocked. And when you're shocked, little things begin to happen that you, you're surprised at, you don't expect. So I think we had a little, little glimpse of what this thing could look like. Reading on, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, you guys are focused on it's been a long time, and it looks like God has forgotten about this. Don't worry about it. He hadn't forgotten about it. He has his time frame. It isn't our time frame. Don't be surprised. And if he, if you go through your life and don't see any of this, that does not mean it's not going to happen. You need to know God is true to his word. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. You see, we have to understand God's timetable, God's perspective. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. This is a statement of the perceptive will of God. Theologians talk about a perceptive will of God and a decretive will of God. A perceptive will of God is more like the ideal will. This is how he wants everything to be perfect. The decretive will of God allows for the reality of sin and now how God is interacting with us based on sin. What actually happens is the decretive will. And so when he when you see a statement like this that says he seems to you know want everyone to be saved, the universalists grab this and would claim universalism not really understanding that in Scripture we have God's perceptive will given to us, but it's his decretive will that will prevail because he is dealing with sin. So he's patient, that's very true, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, but the reality is that that's not going to happen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it's going to surprise you. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I understand that the fire in California was noisy. It was loud. It was like a roar. It was going through the trees and, and spreading. Since everything will be destroyed by, in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? How should you live in light of this coming reality of judgment? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed that's coming. Now that word speed has been a word of that's caused great confusion in the Christian community because um, it looks like we can speed it up. But that's really not the sense of the word. Uh, the sense of the word is an earnest desiring. It implies a pressing in to the word of God and studying and seeking to understand what God is doing so it's really putting, it's putting us into a mode of becoming really faithful students of the word and students of theology. That's the challenge here. That's what he wants us to do. Holy lives become very faithful in the word of God. Look forward, believe and trust God that he will do this. And by the way, the fact that there's going to be 
people destroyed this way, there will be a destruction just like the flood where evil people were destroyed is more confirmation about you know, the fact that he's telling us here, God, his decretive will is that all would come to repentance, but um, excuse me, his perceptive will is, but the decretive will is that that won't happen and there will be people at the end who will be destroyed by this judgment. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. So this is going to be a very serious, serious event, and we're told how to prepare for it. And we prepare for it by living holy lives. A holy life is a life set apart to God, where we are thinking is governed by the will and ways of God in every way. So let me just give you some quick examples of this. Um, first is personal holiness. And the way that we express personal holiness, is first and foremost, is we have to live a Christian worldview, which means we have to know a Christian worldview. We have to be trained in Christian worldview thinking, which most of us have, in my experience, we have very low-level thinking. I'm currently teaching a group of young people uh, biblical worldview, and I've asked them to bring their parents. And the reason I've asked them to bring their parents is twofold. Number one, the parents generally don't have much of a Christian worldview. It's fairly weak, and they don't know that. And so I'm trying to teach them. And secondly, I want to plant seeds of truth in the, in the, the young people and the parents that will continue to germinate at home when they continue the conversations on what they're learning in class. We have to learn to think biblically, to think like Christ. And that is a very challenging proposition. It takes a lot of work. We have to learn to live upright with integrity. Integrity is being true to your profession. You profess to be a Christian, then live as a Christian. That is what integrity is. Integrity is not truth. Integrity is internal consistency, where your words and your actions What's in your heart and what's, what you do are congruent. Next, we need to love truth. We have to be lovers of truth. We have to seek to know truth. And the epitome of truth is Christ. We study Christ. We know Christ. We understand Christ. We see the truth of Christ. And then we let that spread into everything that we do. We want to love justice, mercy, and walk humbly before our God. You've probably heard that text many times before. That's what God requires of us. Justice. Do what's right based on God's definitions of right and wrong. He defines the norms. He defines the ethics of life. We want to be merciful and kind in how we deal with people. And we want to be humble before God. We want to walk in wisdom. Wisdom is the skill to live well in God's universe, which means the skill to obey God, to do his will according to his ways. It's very similar to walking in a Christian worldview. We want to guard our hearts because out of our, out of our heart comes our decisions of life. So we want our hearts to be knit to the word of God and to biblical thinking. We want to guard our tongue, what we say. We want to be careful that we, we, every time we say something, we make a declaration of any, any sort, it will be tested. You claim to love God, that'll get tested. You came to know God, That'll get tested. You came to, to serve God and serve him alone. That'll get tested. Those of you who have been through the BLS 200, you know Lesson 24 is all about Satan's strategy to, to separate us from our confessions of faith. 
separate us from our proclamations of how we're going to walk with God. That's how we get tested, and God uses that to strengthen us. But we want to be very careful about what we say, very guarded, and we want to live disciplined lives. Discipline means that we we eliminate things that don't line up with Christ. Whatever is in our life that doesn't line up with Christ, we have to learn to eliminate that. And that's the call to holy living, personal holiness. We also have a call to financial holiness. Now, financial holiness, again, starts with thinking biblically about resources. We have to recognize that financial resources are simply a temporal tool. That's all they are. They're nothing more than that. If you make them more than that, you make them an idol, and we become mammon worshippers. So you have to keep them in perspective. A financial tool is a tool to enable you to do the will of God. Every dollar I have is a tool to help me line up with God, and I want to use it that way. I don't want to use it just for my personal pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to take a vacation or doesn't want you to play a round of golf. That's not the point. The point is you view everything as what is it that the master wants to do with this resource, which means we have to recognize that we're simply a steward of his resources. It's not ours. It's his. I remember having lunch recently with a young man that had just done a a huge real estate transaction and made a lot of money. And his comment was, you know, I don't have to ever work another day in my life. And I said, well, have you sought the Lord to see what the Lord wants you to do with his resources? And I pointed out, those resources are not yours. And he flinched. He visibly flinched. He went backward in his chair like, what? said, those resources are not yours. You are simply a steward of those resources. And you could tell that was a challenging idea to him. And what's interesting is this guy has had a lot of training on this very point. He's been in some of my prior training where I've taught this principle of stewardship. He's been around the BLS training, and it has not gone into him deeply that he was a steward. And so suddenly now he's being tested. God gave him resources. Now what are you going to do with them? Are you really going to steward those according to the will and ways of God, according to a Christian worldview? Are you going to do what you want to do with them? Very, very challenging proposition for him. I don't know how he's coming out because since we had that lunch, he's not talked to me. I'm not sure what that means, but that's that's a test for him. We have to learn to be lenders, not borrowers. If you read Deuteronomy 28, great text there, it's very clear that the blessing of God is to become a lender, which means you have prospered. God has seen you faithful enough to give you resources, and now you are to deploy those resources to support the will of God in others. So you should not be a borrower or a lender. And you want to train others to be good stewards so they become lenders and not borrowers. The blessing of God is always to become a lender. If you become a lender illicitly and don't use resources correctly, you will wind up you know, experiencing Psalm 73, which says you're on the road to judgment. That was not bless you. You may think you're blessed, but you are not really blessed in the end. Don't, don't invest in the schemes of the wicked. The wicked always have crazy schemes, and it will sound very attractive. It will sound so good. I mean, a great example of this has been this whole Bitcoin mania that's gone on and how this thing has just gone up and down all over the place. It's, just, it's You know, whoever invested in that most likely was a mammon worshiper. 
You know, I'm not saying there may not been somebody, you know, led to do it who was really a good steward. That may have happened, but my sense of it, watching it and observing who I know invested in it, it was all about the money. It was all about mammon. It was not discerning the will of God because they saw something they thought was going to get real hot and make it make money. So they wanted to jump in and be part of that. Don't invest in the schemes of the wicked. It will not stand. If you start chasing that and you bought it when it was 20000 you just lost a whole bunch of money. See, and that's what happens with the schemes of the wicked. They're tricky. You can never tell when they're going to reverse on you. Diversity. You have to know the value of diversity. You don't know what's going to work. God doesn't show us in great detail exactly what he's going to financially bless. So you have to learn how to diversify. Ecclesiastes tells us that. Sow your seed in the morning and at night because you don't know which one is going to work. That's the principle of diversity. But it's diversity in investing in licit things, not schemes of the wicked. And prepare for disorder. Know that as the wicked rise in power, the righteous go into hiding. That's what Proverbs tells us. We're at a time when the wicked are rising up at unprecedented levels in the history of the United States. Not in the history of the world, but in the history of the United States. And we're going to see the, the righteous people moving into hiding. And it will be disorderly because the wicked cause disorder, chaos. Kingdom people bring order out of chaos. So we have to prepare for disorder, prepare to be able to survive the storm. Be, in other words, like building an ark. you got to build your ark and a place to be able to survive the storm. Once the storm has passed, then there will be an opportunity for the Christian community to rise up and present now a biblical view of reality because everything that the world will have tried will have collapsed and fallen apart. It will be nasty and ugly, so we have to prepare for disorder. Well, I don't have time to give you the other tips, but uh, I'm going to just show them to you real quickly. Uh, some other things to do, you should do. Uh, you want to acknowledge God for all his financial blessings. You want to always practice the golden rule. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Be fair and just in your dealings. Count the cost. Always count the cost for whatever, whatever decision you're making. Be sure that you, you're thorough and you're thoughtful about that. Remember, righteousness trumps money. Never do things to try to make money. Do things because it's right. When you do things that are right, then you're more likely lining up with God. Find your C4 work, which is the specific will of God, and obey God's will and ways. This is the general will of God. You know, don't try to do God's will according to your ways. That does not work. Do God's will according to his ways. We have to learn to do that. You want to connect to healthy Christian communities. Don't try to live life by yourself. That will not go well. Be a good steward of your time, your talent, your treasure, and your technology. Technology is a gift from God. And by the way, the technology we have has been released and given to us through Christians. Christian men and women doing the call of God on life have discovered the secrets of God's universe and, and enable us to now to harness these to rule God's creation. Be a good steward of what God's given you. Be multi-generational. It's not about you. Think about the next generation and the generation beyond that. Think about what resources they need, what tools they need, what training they need, you know, what technology they need, what, what financial resources they may need. 
think at that level. It's not about you and how many toys you can have in this life. It's not about how many moments. Well, you know, so many people are talking about making a memory. It's not about making memories. It is about obedience to the will and ways of God. Think biblically about everything. Prepare for economic and political calamity. It's probably coming. Don't get into fear. Get into faith. Faith says, okay, I'm going to get prepared. I'm going to do things to prepare the ark for whatever it is I need to do. Those of you, if you've not read the Benedict Option, I encourage you to read that book. It will be a good book to help you think about how to prepare your ark. Reduce and, if possible, eliminate debt. Debt is your enemy. Store up reserves of food, water, medicine, energy, and other necessities. Find a way to do that. Develop a safety plan. You cannot expect that the police will be able to protect you. As things go into more and more chaos and lawlessness rises up, then it will be more and more unsafe. So you're, right now, we're all kind of asleep, right? We're, we're used to a fairly safe environment. That will change. It's a question of when and how fast. Develop a safety plan for your family. What do you do in the event of some kind of major calamity? What if there is a, a, a nuclear bomb in a suitcase that goes off in downtown Seattle? What are you going to do? How is your family going to respond to that? So you've got to think about that. Build financial reserves. These are tools that you may need in the event of, of great calamity. And keep in mind, a calamity may not happen in your lifetime, but it may happen in the lifetime of your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, and your job is to prepare them for whatever it is that God wants them to do. Live beyond yourself. It's not about you. If possible, be part of a biblically-based, self-sufficient community. If you can connect with others in maybe some kind of rural setting away from cities, the cities could become very toxic and very dangerous, so you may need a rural setting where you can be with other believers who are trying to live according to the will and ways of God, and we can pool our resources, our knowledge, our wisdom, and be, and be available to help each other. This is a great, great practice. This is what Wilberforce did when he was in London 200 years ago fighting slavery he lived in a Christian community outside of London that provided a safe haven for him to seek God and to get comfort and support and encouragement in the battles he was called, called to fight. So Wilberforce is a great person to look at on that score. Invest in alignment with God. You need to learn the merchant banking model. You need to learn the C4 principle and the Beyond Babel model. Things like this are tools of biblical thinking to help you make wise investment choices. Invest in people and organizations that embrace biblical values and principles. Don't just be socially conscious investors. Don't just invest to make a bunch of money for the kingdom. No, invest in what God is doing. Discern where he's at work, where he will bless, and invest resources there. Invest in commodities, which will provide safety from risk of fiat currency. You know, if, if inflation goes crazy, what do you want? You want gold or you want dollars? Hopefully you immediately recognize, well, gold. Because gold, gold has always had value. There was gold in the garden. Probably God signaled to us that that was, should be the basis of our monetary systems. We are largely ignoring that worldwide today and have for the last 80 years. You go back prior to the 1930s, 
fiat currency was a rare thing. And when they tried it, it never worked well. But in the 1930s, rebellion against God became so strong, the atheists gained control, they, were, they persuaded the governments of the world to go fiat. And so now we have fiat currency worldwide. And what we have is slowly inflation is going through the roof. You know, this will not stand. So you want to be wise and recognize what will survive a calamity, a financial calamity will be commodities of some sort. Remember God's purpose for all of the challenges I've laid out. Don't get panicky. Don't get fearful. Remember, God is in this to transform us, to do his will, to execute his purposes, to glorify himself. We are simply his stewards. And be thankful. Be grateful. James says rejoice when you're tested because God is testing your worldview to transform your worldview and bring it more into alignment with himself. This is a time of great growth opportunities. Take advantage of it. Grow up. Help your, your sphere of influence grow up and mature. This is what you're called to do. This is what finding your Goshen is all about. And may God give us grace to do this well. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>